Support for Longform this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allow us to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hello and welcome to the Long Forum Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, Aaron. Hey, you guys. You're both looking great today. I just want to say that. Thanks. It's a good looking day for both of you. I told you guys you could go ahead and do this introduction without me. That was a lie, because this is my episode. <laughs> I talked to Hua Hashu. Hua has been on the show previously, but many, many years ago, like half a decade ago plus. And it was great to get to see him again, because I really, really enjoyed his new book, a new-ish book. It came out last year. The book is called Stay True, or depending on how you read the cover, Stay True, Hua Shu. Uh, it won the Pulitzer Prize for memoir a couple days ago. That happened after we taped this interview, so it is, of course, uh, not addressed in the interview. The book is about his years in high school and college, mostly in college, and a tragic event that occurred while he was in college, which we get into in the interview. We also get into this in the interview, but this book is set while he was in college in Berkeley, which is my hometown, during years that I lived in Berkeley. So I really felt like uh, I was inside the atmosphere of this book. <laughs> and I also, like, I haven't talked to a lot of people who wrote a memoir about, like, their youth in this way. It's like, I don't know. Most people, nothing happens to them, and there's nothing to write about. But I think the way that he dealt with putting this to book together was really interesting and, in my opinion, very successful. I, for one, am juiced about a Aaron Nostalgia Telegraph Avenue episode. Oh, you're in for a lot of that uh, kind of material <laughs> in this episode. Get, get that man a big salad and some used records. Uh, we're brought to you uh, in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make the show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Aaron with Hua Hsu. Welcome to the podcast for your second appearance, Hua Shu. Great to be back. I'm now saying 
what number appearance when people come on the show, just so that if I have to go back and listen to this, I've hard coded this information uh, for myself. Who holds the record just out of curiosity? Not that it's a competition, but I'm just curious. I believe David Gran was on a couple weeks ago and he has been on the show a bunch of times. Maybe him and Ta-Nehisi Coates, I think, have been on the show the most times. Fair. Last time you were on, you had just written a book and I'm having you on again and you just wrote a book and I was very moved by it. It's a hard book to talk about, so I'm going to do my best. This is an autobiographical book primarily concerned with your high school and even more primarily your college years at UC Berkeley, yeah. my hometown. We may we may have passed each other on the street in the late 90s. I, I consider it a possibility. I'm sure I'm sure we we you know our shoulders may have touched at Amoeba. I spent a lot of time on Telegraph Avenue. Uh, I spent a lot of time at uh, Fat Slice. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, I understand that like you didn't think to write this book for the first time in 2021 or whenever you started on this, but this was kind of a life project for you. What was your first stab at this material? So, you know, it's about college. I was at Berkeley as an undergrad from 95 to 99. And it it's about, you know, a friendship I made when I was a first year student, this guy, Ken, and in 1998, that summer, he was killed. And so pretty much immediately after we found out what had happened, I started writing. But, you know, you're 21. I, I, I didn't think I was writing a book. I was just writing because that's what I did. Like, that's how I process stuff. Hmm. You know, over the years, you know, it's funny you mentioned I've been on before. Well, that was 2015, 2016. I think it was in 2016, yeah. You know, like in the early 2000s, I definitely sat with all my notes because I, I was just sort of obsessively taking notes about our friendship, about like things we did, about routines, inside jokes, ever since that moment in 98. And so probably in the early 2000s, I tried to to rationalize doing it. I was just trying to figure out like, what is this? Mm. Is this an essay? This is a book. Like I didn't really see how it could become any of those things, but I did sort of in the back of my mind for the past 20 years have this sense of, well, you keep writing about this. So, you know, eventually someday maybe you'll you'll find a form for it. And, you know, even back in 2015, 2016 when we did this, I think even then I was struggling to capture some kind of arc, some sort of shape for it. It was just a lot of unprocessed memories and feelings and little scraps. But, you know, certainly when I talked to you back then, I don't think I mentioned this, but I may have alluded to it in certain ways that there were just these other projects that were in the back of my mind. Do you have a lot of what is this is, or was this your primary what is this over the years? You mean like some sort of uh, prod? Yeah, things that you're like, this is going to turn into something someday. I keep reviewing all my notes. Like, yeah, do you yeah, yeah. generate a lot of those? No, I don't. In fact, I would say this is the only what is this I've ever had. Mm. You know, I've worked as a journalist for, I don't know, like 20, <laughs> what year is this? For quite a while, you know, <laughs> and I feel like I'm pretty good on commission. If you told me like, Hey man, like I would love for you to look into the history of this. 
I'm pretty open to that. And I, I write about culture. I write about like books. But this was a thing that was always in the back of my mind. Like this was the thing that a lot of that was in service of, if that even makes sense. Mm -hmm. Just becoming better at describing a song or describing, you know, the look of someone's face. Like these are all things that I kind of implicitly understood as skills I needed to acquire to figure out what this like other thing. I don't want to say origin story, but it, it is sort of an origin story for why I, I got so kind of obsessive about writing. Did the fact that this was kind of your one, what is this, make this feel like high stakes to you? Like, I, like I've got to get this right. I've got to like put it all into this. Or was this like sort of a vacation from your normal life of writing pieces for The New Yorker? It's weird to say that it's a vacation because it's it's about like pretty traumatic stuff, but it it was like I was lucky enough to have this fellowship at the New York Public Library, where they, they kind of make you clock in and clock out. Like you you have to go in and write every day, and it actually did feel like taking a vacation from myself. You know, like I would just go into this office, and I. I'm a bit of a hoarder, so I have like a ton of stuff from college, like just material artifacts from that period of my life. I have like journals, I have like all these pages of notes that I've collected over the years. I just have so much ephemera from that moment in my life. And I would just kind of sit there with it and like it was it was painful, but it also just felt like I'm just trying to build my way back into this world to figure out what actually happened and, and and how it affected me. As you sort of gathered this together, what was it like looking at that ephemera, those zines, like those artistic productions of your younger self? I think I knew that whenever anyone writes about the past, especially their own past, it just feels like some moral indictment of the present. Mm. You know, like I teach college students and whenever we read things where someone's writing about, I don't know, like downtown New York in the 1980s. I feel like it's pretty natural for some kid to say, like, I don't want to read this because this person probably thinks my present is like BS, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think I was really conscious of trying to make it feel as unnostalgic as possible. I think there's a huge core of people who like the book because it seems really nostalgic to them and that's totally fine. But I think when nostalgia becomes annoying is when it becomes some sort of contest, like we had it better back then or things were better way back when. And yeah, I think the thing that I struggled to do was just, I just wanted to convey like the texture and rhythm and grain of what it was like back then, you know, like no, no judgment really, because honestly, if 18 year old me knew that. 45 year old me could just type in the name of any song and hear it on a computer. I would have taken that, you know, that, that sounds, that sounds great. But I look back and, and 18 year old me was, did not have access to that. So you just sort of make do with what you had. And like, I enjoy that experience, but the point was like, you don't have to enjoy that experience. Like you don't have to have lived through that to hopefully understand what it was like to be bored in 1997, like what it was like to try and find a friend in 1996, the desperation one might have felt 
wanting to see the new movie or hear the new song back in like 1995. Those weren't better experiences, but I think I needed to kind of capture what it felt like in order for you to understand this world I was trying to create. And honestly, like once I figured out how to do that, it was really hard to come back. Mm. Like I just really enjoyed hanging out with us, like hanging out with these younger versions of myself. Obviously, part of the book is an attempt to kind of hang out more with my friend who who, who like died. And so there's that aspect of it where like you're creating this impossible world where you, you're still just like having fun and doing stuff. But I think even before that point in the book, I was just like, this is just fun to hang out, you know, just now that I've found this rhythm and, and found this, the sort of granular details that bring that world to life. Like I'm really enjoying just being here. And it was a little odd to then go home at the end of each day and return to normal life. Well, I, I mean, I don't mean to like deconstruct your <laughs> book, but I'll just, t- I'll give you like my take on your book. Yeah, yeah go for it. Which is your book is kind of a brilliant deconstruction of, I'm not going to say selling out, but like the guy who's really concerned with selling out Yeah, because you have the two foils of you and Ken and you believe that this is the essential difference between you Mm -hmm. is basically like your take on Pearl Jam. And then you're, you know, able to see this sort of played out as like the most like frivolous, but like important dialectic between two people who were friends. Like it's a great way to remember that we cared about that stuff and to sort of like think about what maybe you care about now, which is quite different, I would think. Yeah, I don't care. Uh, I don't care as much about <laughs> uh, I my views on Pearl Jam have lightened over the years. Yes. But um but yeah, I mean I think I think you're absolutely right that it is about like me thinking that there's this like principled way to be um, Mm -hmm. and him being principled, but in this way that I found illegible, you know, Mm -hmm. and in a weird way, I mean, it's been interesting because, you know, thinking about kind of how, how right he was about things that I didn't understand when we were having these conversations and sort of reflecting on what it means to just kind of replay these conversations over in your mind because the person's no longer around. I think that there's, this wasn't intentional, but that idea of this being a deconstruction of selling out, right? Like, I think that there is a way in which selling out is just a metaphor in the book for, you know, just whatever prejudice you might have over someone else's choices or someone else's sense of taste or style. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like selling out was just a very easy shorthand back then. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that stuff happens now too, uh, probably even faster than it did then. And yeah, like in the book, it has a metaphorical use too, right? It's like, you know, how how could you really just judge someone based on what you think their politics are or, you know, whether or not they have a blue check mark? <laughs> you write for the New Yorker regularly. And when I was reading the book, I was thinking about sort of like the rigor of like 
New Yorker fact checking. Yeah. And you trying to like reconstruct some like weekend where you like went to a frat party in 1998 and how difficult it would be to like really know exactly what happened. What was your research fact checking, asking other people what they remembered process like? I don't mean to be like, are you sure if you're right about all this? I mean, more like, was there sort of a, uh, I guess I think of it as like a night of the gun. You yeah. Know, he interviewed a bunch of other people about what their memories of him was like. What What did you do to construct college hua from other people's uh, viewpoints? This is an awesome question. And um, shout out New Yorker fact checkers. It's just, it's unbelievable. They're, they're so much braver than writers are, to be honest. And kind of working within that system where it gets folded into how you report and like how you observe things, it's been really useful for me as a writer and thinker. I kind of threw all that out the window for the book because so much of the book is actually about, I don't know, it's about memory. Mm -hmm. And it's about how memory becomes the basis of friendship and intimacy. Like, I feel like so many of my friendships are the result of you and another person remembering the same thing and then that becoming like your inside joke, you know, or some sort of like part of your like intimate lexicon. And so what really kind of haunted me all these years were just memories. Like it was, it was obviously like the fact of his death and the fact of, you know, having to, um, you know, experience this sense of loss collectively with friends and whatnot. But it was also just the memories and just the sense of how finite they were now and just wanting to hold on to as many as you could. Because, you know, you don't you don't really have to dwell on memories necessarily if you're confident that you're just going to produce new ones with your friends. But once that pipeline gets shut, you're like, ah, oh, like now everything feels freighted with meaning. And so when I went into writing the book, I tried to just write it all from memory. Like I had a lot of notes from, I don't know, from like 98 to 2003, like a lot of journal entries. So there were certain things where my journals would help me remember like, oh yeah, there's that party or like there'd be parts of my journal where I would say like, I hope I never forget what this means. And obviously I forgot what that meant, you know, <laughs> but I could kind of date the slow loss of that knowledge. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You know, like I love uh, the William Finnegan book, Barbarian Days, where he essentially re-reports his, his whole life. Like he's an incredible reporter. But I, I realized that that isn't actually why I was drawn to writing it. It was more about just how memory could be fallible, how memories are always like competing with one another. There's There's always a sense in my life, like from 98 on, where I was like, I don't know, how close were we? Like, I thought we were really close. We knew a lot about one another. We spent a lot of time with each other. But, you know, like, you never really know, especially when that person's gone. And so I think just having to reckon with that, having to grapple with that, I kind of needed to weave all the possible misremembrances into it. But what's interesting is, we were all so obsessive about the loss 
But at the time, I think it was just too, it seemed too like procedural and too detached to get the trial documents or, or sort of understand exactly what happened that night. And so it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I actually read the court documents, you know. So, but that stuff is is sort of research. Everything else is is very much through the haze of memory. And I, I kind of wanted to keep it that way. I had some friends read versions of it along the way. And sometimes they would say like, you know, that didn't actually happen the way you described it. Or, uh, hey, like I was there too. <laughs> and um, I think usually I I would just kind of keep it as is, as long as it didn't like completely violate the spirit of what had happened. Because I also knew that that sense of doubt would be built into the book. Thinking structurally about the book, Ken's death comes two thirds of the way through the book. So you're going to read most of the book not knowing the major event that in some ways is sort of the inciting incident for wanting to write the book. Was that a decision that you made early on? Did you ever consider like putting that closer to the front of the book so that the memories are sort of with that knowledge? Yeah. It used to be even further back actually, like in, in earlier drafts of the book. Mm. I don't, it sounds weird to say, but I didn't, it just sort of happened. Like I didn't really think about, like I wanted the book to open with a sense that there is a degree of self-awareness to all of this. You know, so it sort of opens with this retrospective tone where you're sort of like conscious of the fact that mm -hmm. this is about someone looking back at the past. But the book itself became this kind of therapeutic thing but yeah, it was, it was sort of hard to write about the aftermath that much because so much of the aftermath was this grasping for language that I, I didn't have. I feel like there's so many journal entries where I'm just like, man, this is like really fucked up. I think something that I realized while writing it was I, I, I just thought like, this is, this is just it's only sad, like it's only, it's only terrible, you know? But I think as I sat down to write, I realized like, well, no one will care unless they understand why I thought this person was so great, you know? And the more I wrote that stuff, and this goes back to your question before about being able to conjure that time in life, you know, when you're 19, 20, kind of like, fiercely in love with your friends, but also like deeply competitive with them. <laughs> yeah. And the more I, I spent time there in that zone, the more I was like, this is actually a happy book too. And, and that doesn't diminish how terrible it is as well. That doesn't diminish the tragedy of it, but it's also a celebration of someone. And it's a celebration of this time in life that I think a lot of people cherish looking back you know, just the effect that you and your friends have on one another when you're young. And being able to hold on to both of those things at once was not something I understood. You know, like I didn't go into it thinking like, this will as much be this like homage to someone people don't know as it is this sort of like eulogy for them. And so I think that also explains the structure of the book because so much of it is just about this like good person that most people would have the pleasure to have ever known. And for you to understand 
why it it sucked so bad that this happened, you have to experience all of that with us. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. You said something earlier about how doing these kind of commission stories with like a topic and a deadline was something that you had to learn how to do to learn how to write this book. I wonder if you could talk about how having this career you've had writing about music, writing about arts, writing profiles of artists, like what were the things that you picked up that you brought back to this experience? It sounds it sounds really dumb, but there were definitely these times when I would be reviewing some like random CD in the 2000s. You know, back when there were a lot of magazines, and you could just like crank out a bunch of re- reviews for Entertainment Weekly and like cover your bills for the month, you know. But I've never really been that enamored with my own opinions. Mm. There are things I love, but I never think like the fact that I love this means like everyone should love this. Like I'm not necessarily like a very didactic critic. And so like I'd be writing these reviews and I would think like, well, what's interesting about it is like how this thing sounds. It's like maybe I need to figure out like how to describe this like baseline. 
And so I just kind of viewed it at a certain point as like practice. Like it doesn't matter if I give this thing a three stars or four stars, but for me to stay interested in this work beyond like paying my bills, I got to figure out like how to describe this baseline because there are these very fleeting things that you also want to describe. And you'll never be able to do that if you can't just do this very basic task of like figuring out a different way to describe like a guitar solo, you know? So there's that where a lot of my criticism is about description and about like describing something in a way where you can imagine, you know, what this sounds like or what this looks like. Beyond that, like thematically, I think I've always just been drawn to the utopian possibilities of being in a band or like a collaboration. And so I think as a critic, I was just always interested in friendship and people making stuff together. And that was always something that I would celebrate. You know, like if two artists you wouldn't expect to be friends were like actually friends and kind of inspired each other. Those were kind of these images that would draw me deeper into pieces of music. You're very comfortable when something interests you and it's not necessarily inherently interesting to others to kind of like (laughs) just lead in the direction. Like my memory of your first book is that this guy was kind of like a stubborn, never really recognized in his time, a little hard to like swallow personally, but you found something like some grain in that story that you kind of wanted to show the world. And that's something I feel like I see in a lot of your work And I wonder if that's conscious with you. Is it a strategy or is it just you're going where you're going and like you're not aware that other people aren't always flowing in that direction? (laughs) Yeah, my first book, A Floating Chinaman, was about H.T. Zong, who he was seemed like kind of a tough hang, but he was very persistent in trying to get people to buy his books, like which were all self-published and they were pretty like politically confrontational. You know, I feel like with that book, it was just the the kind of 90s record digger kid in me. Yeah. Where I was like, oh, I found this like obscure thing. It feels like it anticipated the future, but it didn't. Like it was just it was it actually just happened to happen before the present. It's like when you hear the record and you're like, oh, like this is the reason hip hop started or something. Whereas in reality, like there was no connection. It just so happened that all of these different people like made the same thing at the same time. Am I making any sense? Yeah. As a fellow, like uh, obscure record person, I I'm following you. I'm following you completely. (laughs) Probably like 70% of my record collection is these like failed revolutions. But um, yeah, I think I am just kind of drawn to these people who, you know, had a vision that just didn't pan out. And there probably is a way in which that speaks to this larger, I don't know, like tragedy, like this, this sense of in my own life, like, oh, what could have been if like my friend had met this untimely end? And maybe we wouldn't be friends, but that's a possibility that that's like worth thinking about. So I don't know, like, I think there probably is some larger connection in which my fascination with like old things, this kind of discarded knowledge that you're talking about too, and also this like story in my own life are all intertwined in a way. So in the period between these two books, you're 
pretty steadily doing that kind of work you described for the New Yorker, taking on assignments, getting interested in something, writing about it. What has that journey been like for you? And like, what of that work is the most interesting to you going forward? Going forward? I don't even know, because this was the, what did you describe it as like the what is this? (laughs) Oh, right. This was your one what is this? Yeah. I mean, it's not something that ever was that all consuming up until I had like the fellowship, which made it all consuming. Yeah. But I have, I don't, I don't know what, what I'll do next because it, it gestated for so long, you know? Yeah. Even though it wasn't something that I was um, like trying to put out there. Like this was not a, a book that I was going to pitch to every single person I met the way I think. Like sometimes if you have this great idea, you're like, I'm going to try you. I'm going to try you. I'm going to try you. Because like I didn't know what it was until I finished it. Like it, it's literally something that only made sense to me as soon as I finished it. And it, it sort of exists in a completely different universe than everything else I write. It is interesting juggling that kind of 90s zine fascination with, you know, like what we were talking about before, just like, here's this obscure thing. But then knowing that there's like a larger readership for which you have to kind of justify this obscure thing. So I actually really enjoy that process of writing about like an academic or writing about like a poet or writer, people who like they're they're not like in the zeitgeist necessarily, but they might have something useful for us to think about now. And just kind of trying to bridge those two, those different worlds. That's the stuff that I enjoy the most. Like I'm at I'm at work right now and I was just in a meeting with a student where this question came up of like, where does your, when you write a paper, are you starting with like the passage in the short story that perturbs you and you're just sort of like untangling this peculiarity? Or are you more interested in like, oh, here's an observation about this, this place in time. How does this novel expand on that observation? You know, and I feel like I've always been in the latter category where I'm just like, you know, I think in all of my criticism and in to some extent in my like reporting, I'm just interested in like what it's like to be alive in this moment, you know, like what it feels like, what you're allowed to imagine, what you can't imagine, what you can imagine now that you couldn't imagine a couple years ago, you know, um, like I just did this profile of Randall Park, this, the Korean American actor. And the most interesting stuff was, you know, he and I are roughly the same age, was talking about like just how weird it is now that there's so much like Asian American content out now. And just trying to convey to a reader how weird it would be for someone like him. You know, like this is, it's very ancillary to his story because like people are more interested in like what it's like to work with Jason Momoa or something. But I'm more interested in like what it means to work through these different shifts where in this 1990s, there's like no actors like you out there, 2000s, you know, there are, there are more that you're comparing yourselves to. And now it's like, you know, there's just tons of Asian American stuff out there. And so I think as a critic, even when I was writing more music criticism, because I don't really do that as much now, it was like, well, I'm really interested in like band camp as a platform. Now I need to find an artist who will let me write about this platform. You know what I mean? Like I'm interested in like internet music, 
now I'm going to find the best artist through which to talk about. Like I'm interested in questions of like anonymity and identity. Therefore, when the next burial album comes out, I can write about burial, you know, less so than like, I get a promo CD. I li- I'm listening to it hundreds of times. I'm like, Oh, I, I'm trying to figure out like aesthetically what it is about this that intrigues me. And as someone who only started using Spotify when I was writing this book. So like, just maybe three or four years ago, you know, it's fascinating kind of how, uh, like all these questions about like algorithms, taste, they make the 90s seem so ridiculous in a way. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, that is kind of what I'm more interested in as a critic. It's just like, what are the conditions under which we live and listen to music and like cultivate taste now? Less so than like what those changing tastes are. Can we talk about that Randall Park profile briefly? Yeah, sure. So this profile has a really unusual structure in which you're profiling Randall Park, who is directing his debut feature, which is based on a Adrian Tomina. Yeah. A graphic story, a graphic uh, novel from uh, Optic Nerve, I believe, that when I read it was like a super seminal work. Like I think about that piece all that time. So you sort of go inside this graphic novel and you and Randall Park's relationship to it. And the graphic novel is about this like couple attending this like Asian American film festival and then having an argument after it. And so there's many, like there's many levels of both real and fictional takes on Asian American art. Like there's just like the story's happening at three or four levels of depth simultaneously Tell, tell me about putting that together and how you thought about approaching that profile. I mean, and, and the piece ends at a film festival. Too. Oh, yes, yes. Um, like in a real life <laughs> film festival. Yeah, it's interesting. Like it wasn't my idea. Like at the New Yorker, some people find this really weird, but you know, there's like these general ideas meetings and everyone just kind of throws these ideas out there. And if you really want something, then like you can you can kind of like make a, claim for it but this was just an idea that someone asked like would you be interested in this and i wasn't sort of innately interested in just like profiling this actor yeah even though randall park seemed like this nice person but it was the fact that he was adapting shortcomings which so like you were you you remember reading yeah when it came out yeah i think adrian tomina lived in berkeley at the time yeah yeah he lived on a college ave i believe yeah local celebrity yeah, totally. And I remember when that graphic novel came out, finding it like very disturbing because it was just about this like incredibly misanthropic, like shitty dude, you know? Yeah. And, you know, like you said, it begins with him at this like Asian American film festival. You don't realize it's a film festival until like a couple pages in and you're just like, wow, like he's like making fun of community and like (laughs) and like asian american film festivals and like these things that i feel like i was really invested in it was just like a completely left field look at it you know it just it wasn't like cynical but it was pretty acerbic you know and so i was just fascinated with the fact that randall who seems like and is honestly like one of the nicest people i've ever met wanted to adapt something that seemed so like harsh, particularly at this moment, 
when like Minari, everything, every, like there's just so much really positive content out there. Mm. So, I mean, that was kind of what drew me to it. It did get a little hard to juggle these different frameworks because it's like he's trying to make a Randall Park is trying to make a film and in the film there's like a film in the film right and the actors he hired for his film had a completely different relationship to shortcomings than he did and that I did and so it it became this thing where this core text so many people had different relationships to it and it just became this index to how much things had changed over the past 20 years. You know, so it was like there were like younger actors who were in Randall's film. There were like slightly older, more established actors who play kind of themselves in a film in his film. <laughs> I, I don't know if anyone listening can can follow this, but like there were just all these different generations of people. And it was interesting to hear them talk about Adrian's work and for Adrian to then reflect on like why he wrote this back in the 2000s and sort of like how it was read as negative but he didn't mean it that way um I don't know it just seemed like this interesting opportunity for me to like reflect on questions of quote-unquote representation which I think often get talked about in pretty flat predictable ways but I I felt like nobody said the thing I thought they were going to say around shortcomings when you are asked to like write a profile of a Asian American actor who's making a movie about Asian American themes by, you know, as adapted from material by another Asian American writer. Is that exciting for you? Or is that like a, like, ah, oh, fuck, like I got to do this. Shit. Like, <laughs> like what, what is your relationship with that assignment? Aaron, this is a very good question. Um, <laughs> You know, I think at first I was like, all right, like, am I really like, why do I have to do this? You know, but I found something about it that like really interested me. Like I wasn't, I wasn't compelled to do mm -hmm. it, but I think once I figured out that I was really interested in how he was negotiating these issues that like I was facing too, because I was reporting this story while I was finishing my book. And so I was really interested in what it was like for Randall, who's kind of known for being one thing, you know, he's like affable, very good natured, you know, um, for him to not only become a director, but then sort of direct this project that people wouldn't necessarily associate with him. Like, I was like really interested just on a personal level with like what that negotiation was like. I don't think that necessarily comes out in the piece because I don't really insert myself. I don't have to. But at first I was like, ah, I don't really know if there's anything here for me because like I don't really profile actors. But the more I thought about like wanting to be able to ask him these questions that I was also asking myself, the more exciting it got. And, but like one of the things that when I think about kind of the things I write about the New Yorker, like I've, I write a lot of random things. Like this year I've written about like the art of conversation. I wrote about the history of J. Crew. There's no like through line here. But I think over the past four or five years, I have kind of gone back to a lot of things that are actually pretty formative for me. Like I wrote about the Vincent Chin killing, which was like this galvanizing moment for Asian Americans in the early 80s. I've interviewed the director Wayne Wang, 
I uh, profiled Maxine Hong Kingston. Like these are all people and incidents that are really baked into my sense of like identity, history, community. But being able to kind of bring that, like you mentioned, the New Yorker fact checking, bringing that the luxury of what it means to write about it with the resources the magazine has, um, with the fact checkers, like it's been kind of interesting to revisit these things that are like they're not actually as settled in my mind as I thought they were. So yeah, like I actually really relish that opportunity, even though in a way it's like I'm writing about things that I've already written about or thought about a lot. Yeah. I mean that, that sort of the power of the New Yorker works in interesting ways where like when you were describing like, Oh, I get interested in the thing. And then I want to like find the artist who's like the perfect entry. It's like, yeah, you can get like the top version of that because you're, you know, you, you have sort of like a slightly like longer reach there. Yeah. But now, I mean, but that's also why I just don't write about music yeah. as much. I just feel like, maybe the questions I ask about contemporary life aren't as interesting as what someone who actually uses TikTok all the time is asking, you know, or like, I wouldn't know the right person to peg that, that piece to, you know, things like that. So it is interesting to be able to go back and kind of do things. Like when I profiled Maxine Hong Kingston, there was no discrete peg for it. Like it wasn't like she had a book coming out, but you know, it was, a, it was like an incredible opportunity to kind of remind people of how great she is. I feel like there's some continuum in which it's possible to be like the character in Shortcoming as a young man and appreciate Maxine Hong Kingston as an older yeah. person. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for this interview. I, I really appreciate it. Hey, this was awesome. Thanks so much for... Uh, I mean, I'm I'm glad you were able to kind of vibe with it as a Bay Area person at that time. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I know you said this was like your one of one, but if you want to do another one that's just sort of like you uh, going to local like underground hip hop shows <laughs> in the Bay Area in the 90s, I, I personally would read that. <laughs> I'll think about that. Yeah. And that was the long form podcast. Thanks very much to my guest, Hua Shu. Thanks to our editor on this episode, Jackie Sajiko. Thanks to Susan Peterson for doing the show notes. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to everyone over at Vox Media. We'll be back with a new show next week. Support for Longform this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.